the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Reported voter turnout in elections in this country is among the lowest in the developed nations of the world. That's one reason why The Economist magazine recently ranked the United States 25th in an assessment of the strength of our democracy. Our ranking has been steadily declining for more than a decade. In this edition of Challenge 2.0, we'll examine why more people don't vote in elections and what that indicates about our sense of hope for the future. Well, we have three wonderful panelists with wonderful perspectives to shed more light on this whole issue of voter participation, public participation, and I'd like to introduce each of them. Uh, Chris Armitage is almost nine months into your primary campaign in Washington's 5th Congressional District over in the Spokane area, and you arrived here very early today. I'm very appreciative of that, Chris. Uh, Varisha Khan just completed your first political campaign. You ran for and you won a seat on the Redmond City Council, and you've just started serving in that capacity as well. Yeah. And Mike James, who I had the pleasure and honor of working with for many years, entered the homes of hundreds of thousands of Western Washington uh, families nightly as a TV news anchor and journalist. Uh, you also ran as candidate, uh, I think it was 1994, for the U.S. Senate. That was the year. So this is the range of experience we're going to offer. Before we get into the questions, I might just ask each of you to tell us, the audience, how you happened to make that decision to run for political office, and Mike, your combination of political journalism and then also running for politics. Chris, I might begin with you first. Sure, uh, I've been involved in activism and volunteering for years, and I remember it was about a year and a half after I got out of the Air Force and, and finished my degree that I uh, was speaking with a friend and we were talking about a lot of the frustrations that we had with the current political climate, especially after the 2018 election uh, midterms. And it was really clear that I knew who I didn't want to vote for. But he asked me something I'd never been asked before, who do you actually want to vote for? And I said, I'd like to vote for someone who's an outsider, Someone who's work, who's know what it knows what it's like to be working class. Someone who's been uninsured and underinsured. Someone who's made minimum wage. Someone who knows what it's like to be one paycheck away from being on the street. Someone who knows what it's like to have student loan debt. And he said that describes me. And I said I can't run for office. I'm working class, and I, I you know, made 14 an hour at my last job, and and those kind of things, and all those things that I actually admired. You know, being an outsider and and, and uh, you know, experiencing what the 99% experience in this country were things that I perceived as barriers to running. And so I decided to get involved because I know that we can't just sit on our hands and hope that somebody else steps up. Mm -hmm. So that's why I decided to jump in. Varisha, what was your experience? What led you to run for office? Yeah, well, I'd say a similar experience in that, um, you know, growing up I felt a missing perspective in our uh, governance, our leadership, and often in our media as well and how it's portrayed of minority communities across our country. Mm -hmm. um, so growing up, you know, I never saw, uh, you know, an American Muslim on TV. 
uh, someone that wears a hijab like me on TV. And so I knew from a very young age that I would dedicate my life to making our country, our government, our politics a lot more representative. So, um, but more recently, I uh, took that upon myself to work in nonprofit for the last few years. Um, did work in you know civic engagement, voter registration, um, and ultimately building power for communities that are often left out. So um, specifically, I was the director of a PAC of a nonprofit, so a political action committee, where I was basically building a pipeline of new candidates from communities that are often left out um, and perspectives that are often left out to run, and then also to support other candidates who would want to elevate those communities as well. And 2019 came around, and I thought, you know what? I think it's time to try it out for myself. <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> Mike, how about your background? What led you in that direction? Well, it, it's interesting because it, that's a push from uh, journalism, you know, which at best is nonpartisan. You're trying to look at factual material and report it in that manner. But uh, I, I was a big reader of Walter Lippmann. It may be a strange mm -hmm. uh, name to, to viewers now. Uh, he'd written a book called The Public Interest. And his idea of what politics should lead to is the public interest. Uh, set aside the party and the ideologies and whatnot. Look at the facts and decide what is best for the public interest. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't see that happening. It was the beginning of a really divisive period in our politics, which is endured to today. And I, I said, I, maybe I can change that and bring a more uh, factual um, basis to the decision making we do. Uh, so I launched campaign in 94, the Ginrich year, not the best year for me as a Democrat. <laughs> and the year Representative Foley, who was Speaker of the House in uh, CD5, the district yeah. I'm running in, lost his seat. Uh, it's, it's interesting looking at the, the changing tides. You know, Foley was first elected in 1964, definitely a turning point for the U.S. He lost his seat in 94, the start of the Gingrich years. I think 2020, we're looking at the next turning. Yeah, there's another crossroads, really, yeah. Well, speaking of crossroads, there is and has been for some time considerable consternation and concern over the level or lack thereof of voter turnout. Uh, according to one survey that we looked at, national participation runs just a little bit above 50 percent, and that depends on the election. Washington State has been either, depending on the election, well above or well below that. What is your experience with that, do you think that's representative, and why do you think we're looking at that? Whichever one of you would like to take that first. Yeah, let me take, take, take a stab at that uh, uh, in this manner, and then uh, Chris and Varisha uh, other perspectives. One of the things we have in this country is uh, registered voters, and the turnout by registered voters is reasonably high. <laughs> but if you take the overall voting age population, we rank about 31st out of 35 Western countries, way down the list. We just have a lot of people who are voting age who don't bother to register mm -hmm. to vote. It's almost half. If you take the, the national picture of that, almost half the people who could vote uh, don't bother to register to vote. We can get into why, why that happens. Mm -hmm. Let me just say one thing that does happen in a lot of other Western countries. If you're a citizen, you get to vote. You don't have to separately register to vote. Mm -hmm. Belgium is a great example of that. Turnout in Belgium is 95%. Because you don't have to, if you're a citizen of Belgium, you are eligible to vote. You don't have to go through the mechanics of registering to vote. And that, uh, to me, to some degree, is one of the disincentives that keeps people away from the ballot box. Well, I think if a, if a, if a Middle Eastern or South American country had all of the electoral problems that we have, we probably would have invaded mm -hmm. us by now. 
that it is even, um, you know, uh, so many folks who monitor elections have seen that uh, the discrepancies and, and, you know, lost votes and those kind of things. I mean, in 2000, we saw that an election was stolen thanks to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. They, t- they were ordered to stop counting ballots. So people's faith is really shaken in our electoral system. Now, the way to do that, I think, is to be proactive. It's great to have voter drives and get people educated, but we need automatic voter registration. We need nationwide mail-in ballots. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all that speaks to the fact that, you know, we have a, a need for uh, a change system in engaging voters and including more voters. So um, one way that um, I managed to do that in my campaign was by engaging voters um, who often don't vote. Um, or have never voted before, or maybe only voted once. Mm-hmm. That's like those people are considered low propensity voters, right? And that's often the demographic that's left out. I mean, those are often um, you know new citizens, right? Recent immigrants, um, you know, first generation immigrants, um, people from marginalized communities, um, and that are low income. And so that that's a piece of our population that when we look at all of our voter data we often look at the fact that they're the, the voter turnout's low for them and i would argue that a lot of times it's because campaigns also don't reach out to those communities because we're often discouraged yeah. to actually include them in our initial um you know voter contact so you know typical consultants will tell a candidate that you know you should target these high propensity voters, the people that are right. guaranteed to turn out, they, they vote every time, they vote in every election. And if you look at the demographics, who those people mm-hmm. are, they're often older, they're often white, and they're often the people that have already made up their minds about who they'll vote for, mm-hmm. and who already have enough influence in the political system and in their, in their government already. You know, in my campaign, we made it a, an absolute priority to include you know, um, new citizens, new voters, people who have often not voted before, mm-hmm. um, people who have you know, English as a second language speakers in their homes. And we also did voter registration drives as well. Well, and uh, Rep- uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez increased non-regular voter turnout, low propensity voter turnout, mm-hmm. by 68% yeah. from yeah, the last off-year election. Absolutely. And I, I, I wasn't trying to say that it, we shouldn't reach out to different folks, just that right. we need to get to this on a systemic level Absolutely. because it's an uphill battle for candidates who really are more likely to engage uh, with the public and to you know be unbought and turn down corporate money and those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting study that tracked the difference between uh, the, the age before uh, television really came on, mm-hmm. those campaigns tended to be uh, door-to-door, uh, much more door-to-door, and turn out the vote, turn out the vote kind of campaigns. Now it's so much of the money goes into, uh, especially statewide and national, into the television campaign, and that is aimed at people who vote you know, who are used to voting. And there isn't the same attempt that there used to be, you know, we're talking 50, 60 years ago now, uh, to, to go after people who didn't vote. You brought up an important point there, and I think that is single word money. Yeah. And now, money is the big player now, it's, depending uh, on the scale of I, the election. I know one of the things that you talked about is that essentially there's a drift from political candidate to being a professional fundraiser. And that as a result, how much of that leads to exactly what each of you talked about, and that is targeting the high propensity voter as opposed to those that haven't voted before. Yeah. What are your perspectives on that, Varisha? Yeah, I know you really did a lot of work on that. I did, yeah. So in my campaign, I made a point to reject corporate PAC money and to reject developer money as well, oh, given mm-hmm. that I was running for a city race in a city that's a very rapidly growing city, Redmond, Washington. Um, and so by doing that, then that 
allowed me to then focus on the voters that are in the city instead of the special interest groups that are going to pump money into my campaign, mm -hmm. which I did need, of course. <laughs> right. But that meant that me raising money would require me to go to those individuals, require me to go to the, out to the community right. and raise the money from them. And so, I mean, and that didn't limit me in my fundraising capability at all because I ended up raising the most money out of any Redmond council race ever in the history of the city. Um, I raised $40,000 just from grassroots donations. And that did result in the votes. I mean, of course, you know, a lot of that ended up fueling and pumping the, the community that was often left out because then they felt like, okay, they have a voice. Even if they put in $50, that $50 was gonna have an impact. And then when they came out the doors and would knock on doors with me, they would see the direct impact in getting to talk to voters that would, you know, end up changing that perspective. So we won by 66 votes. And with that narrow of a race, I mean, you know that everything we did mattered, but especially including those those new voters, the people 66 that are left votes. out. You know, that's the message to people who say, oh, my vote doesn't count. Right? You know, I don't have counts. a I don't have a foot in this game, so I'm not going to bother. Exactly. But when you win by 66 votes, every vote counts. Well, and I think it's worth pointing out that you were running against, was it a 12-year incumbent? Yes, sir. 12-year yeah. incumbent, someone who um, is known in the community, right? When you're, when you're there for 12 years, you definitely build a name recognition. Mm -hmm. and. And then there's obviously the, the general voter default to vote for the incumbent. So mm. we're in a time where, you know, we have a lot of changing needs. You know, we're, we have a growing community. You know, our, our um, you know, communities that are, are, the community members that are low income, people who can't afford housing right now, their voices are not at the table mm. or even renters. Their voices are not at the table. I'm a renter myself. So I said, you know, this is a time to actually bring those voices in, bring them at the table. So I think people are ready for that. Chris, how does that resonate with your experience? Though? Well, I definitely am going to pick your brain a lot more after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's so if elected, I'd be the youngest sitting member in the House of Representatives and in Congress. And um, my, my opponent uh, was first elected to a political office uh, when I was two years old. And she's held elected offices every single year since then. And so the name recognition's there. Uh, but exactly like you, this is about engaging with people. It's a grassroots campaign. One of the interesting things is, um, you know, when, when I first announced, uh, someone who's been in the party for a while said, okay, well, our last candidate raised $5 million and lost, so you're going to need $7 million, maybe ten. And to me, it's just, it's so obvious that to a lot of people, it's just dollars and cents. There's no other factors. The idea that maybe the public wants outsiders, the public wants people who know the struggles that they go through. You know, I have family members who want Social Security and Medicare. I'm not going to let those get cut because that hurts my family. Someone who gets elected and has been insulated by politics and is surrounded by, you know, one percenters and CEOs, uh, they're just, they're going to see our needs as political bargaining chips for their own career advancement and self-enrichment. And that message resonates with people. Uh, there's some folks who've said that I'm too far left. And it's just amazing to me because the fact is, uh, someone who's been through, you know, the experiences the majority of Americans have, uh, who, who goes to them, knocks on their door, attends an event that they're at, and listens and shares experiences is going to have so much more in common than someone uh, than someone running for office who's been in office for decades. And you know, it's it's just it's so obvious when their political views are only related to what they think will let them win. You know, say when their website doesn't have any policies on it. Uh, right. You know, or they wouldn't they won't give you straight answers when they hold town halls. They make sure to vet every question first so they don't get asked anything challenging. People can smell that and it loses respect on every single side of the aisle. Mm -hmm. 
You know, just an anecdote, uh, Jeff, about money. Uh, you know, when I, I was in a statewide campaign, and so in a statewide campaign, it's less going to be not trying to knock on every door across the state. So you try to, to go to events and you know, give people a chance to meet, you hold little news conferences, you know, in, in the different cities. But at a certain point in the campaign, you understand, you know, what you were saying, Marisha, you need money. You need money to sustain all this. So instead of uh, talking so much about uh, the issues, I'm on the phone making cold calls day after day after day. Absolutely, and I think Washington State is a leader in trying to change that. So yeah. Seattle's elections have completely changed the game with their democracy vouchers. Oh, with the voucher. Right, yeah. so, um, and my campaign consultant, Riel Johnson, he was also running some Seattle City Council races. Um, so he kind of got a taste of both, right? And in his experience, you know, it, the, the vouchers honestly made the most difference in turning out voters as well, mm -hmm. because individuals who might have been, you know, disenchanted by their vote, you know, yeah. being counted or their money having an impact, all of a sudden were empowered to put yes. in money to a You've candidate they care about. you got some power in your hands to influence it all. Literally in their we hands. We might pause yeah. there for the uh, benefit of people that might not know what those vouchers are. Could one of you just summarize what that is? Basically, it's a it's a portion of your tax dollars, I can't remember which specifically, um, that are allocated, that are set aside for uh, an individual to then donate to campaigns. Yeah, um, they send you a check in the mail that can only be donated to a political campaign. Yes. And uh, most yes. of the people actually end up not using it, and so the fund stays there. So if they keep pulling out that small, you know, $20, $40 a year, uh, and half the people don't use it, well, in a few elections, people could end up with like $500 freedom vouchers to donate to candidates. And the best way to get them is you knock on people's doors and you yeah. say, hey, uh, you know, this is who I am, this is what I stand for. Will you contribute your, yeah. your voucher? There's a conventional wisdom that you have voter participation among all age groups, especially as we said, older people, and I guess I'm included in that, uh, that's that big, but among younger people that it's a much smaller turnout. To what extent do you think that's true? Yeah, I think recent data um, has actually shown since like 2016 and 2018 that while the number of young voters, like between the ages of 18 to 35, mm -hmm. um, is still significantly low, the number is growing. It is increasing. So the proportion of voters within that demographic is slowly increasing. Um, and we've seen that in the last four years. We've seen that in the last two years. And I think this year especially, I mean, we're all going to be looking to that data, right? We're going to see what that voter turnout is going to be like. Um, but I know for a fact that in my own race in the city of Redmond, um, it was younger voters that did um, turn out and did impact our election. So, you know, the, the precincts that I did win in, with, you know, overwhelmingly won in, were the precincts that had, um, you know, renters, that had new residents, that had young families and, and young professionals. Mm -hmm. So that definitely made a difference when they saw someone that looked like them and speaking to their yeah. needs in running in their own hometown. Yeah. The one thing I'd also argue is that we have a new energy in our, in our elections and in our politics and government yeah. that we haven't seen in a while. Um, the number of high school students who were volunteering on my campaign I mean, outnumbered any other volunteers. And these were young people who were already passionate about issues. Mm -hmm. And they came to my campaign after seeing that I was pushing for environmental sustainability. And these were high school students who were involved in climate justice in their high schools mm -hmm. um, or were passionate about reforming, um, you know, or ending gun violence, for instance. And so they saw a candidate that shares those values and wants to bring that change. And they decided to 
spend their free time and volunteer their time on a campaign. So I definitely believe that we have a new generation of passionate, um, you know, engaged uh, uh, voters and, and pre-voters and pre-registered voters right now that are going to not only vote in the next few years and the next couple decades, but they're going to be very informed and very engaged. Mm -hmm. Chris? So in, in years past, I think the, the youth vote has been ignored, like you mentioned, with low propensity voting. Uh, and there was actually a candidate several years ago who was asked, how are you going to get young people to vote for you? And they said, well, my son is young, so that might help. <laughs> and that was their strategy. Yeah. That's it. And, uh, you know, I'm a member of the Sunrise Movement, a youth-led climate action group. And we held, we've held a few demonstrations, one of which uh, Governor Jay Inslee attended. Mm -hmm. I was the only uh, other person involved in politics who was allowed to speak. He got to speak because he was the governor. I got to speak because I show up to the meetings. <laughs> and uh, there were 2,500 people in attendance. Wow. Students were marching out of all the local high schools and attending as groups in mass. Mm -hmm. And they understand that we need to act. Before that event, I actually had someone tell me uh, from from inside the Democratic Party, he said, uh, you shouldn't support that Green New Deal stuff. Just don't do it. And I told the story of him telling me that at the event uh, when I spoke in front of all 2,500 people. And, uh, but, you know, that the crowd was really enthusiastic about finally having a candidate that's going to stand up for change. I'm also the first openly LGBT candidate to run for this seat. Uh, we, you know, the, the youth vote is there to be had if they'll just be spoken to directly and respectfully. You talk about your different backgrounds, and we hear so much these days of people living in either information or cultural silos. What has been your experience, Varisha, you'd be knocking on a door and in a suburban area, did you encounter much reluctance to engage in conversation with you? And Chris, you've talked about, you come from groups that are not well represented and merely being in Northeastern Washington state. Uh, but I think you've mentioned that you've seen some of your bumper stickers right next to those of our sitting president. Mm -hmm. Give us some perspectives on that. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a, an interesting thing. I, I, so I wrote the first article I've ever written, and it was titled, How a Progressive Bumper Sticker Act Ended Up Next to Trump Bumper Stickers. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of it comes from my background. Uh, when I was active duty Air Force, I did law enforcement and security. And whether it was sitting in 140 degree heat on the Iraq-Kuwait border, or sitting in a patrol car out on Fairchild Air Force Base, the person sitting next to you, they could be from rural Alabama, they could be from the Bronx. And you'd have to get along with them. And if you didn't get right. along with them, if your flight sergeant was worth, a, worth anything, they would make sure you worked together every single day until you learned to get along. <laughs> and so after doing that for years and eventually becoming an assistant flight sergeant, I had a lot of time and experience talking to people who came from very different backgrounds and who felt they disagreed strongly with my views. But once we got down to it and we're talking morals and values, we did end up agreeing. And so now we have people over. Now, the first time that bumper sticker situation happened was a gentleman named Ray. And he came to our office and talked about uh, a really unfortunate situation where his uh, partner, her, um, her son, had passed away at 19 years old from preventable mm -hmm. cancer. Uh, would have just taken uh, genetic screening and the insurance company wouldn't do it because it was exploratory and then he had to show symptoms first well mm. he 
felt dizzy and not so good on the football field one day and told the coach and they took him to the hospital and at that point it was stage four and he died within a few weeks. Mm. And uh, one of his friends works on the campaign. That's, um, that's how we ended up meeting up. And, you know, we sat down, we heard each other out, we shared our experiences. I told him I support single-payer Medicare for all, period. Um, but I explained why I feel that way. And, and, you know, something a former commander of mine once told me was the best answer is the right answer, second best answer is the wrong answer, and the worst answer is no answer. And right now I'm not seeing any answers. Mm-hmm. And we got along, and he shared his card, and there's been other folks too. It's, it's really just about connecting with people with your morals and values and showing them that you, you do have high concern uh, for what they're going through. I would also agree. I mean, I think people are feeling left out. And it sounds like that's, you know, what people are feeling in eastern Washington and people are feeling that, you know, here and even in the east side of, of the Seattle area. Um, people are feeling left out. They're feeling unheard. They feel like, you know, the government is up here and they're down here and there's, there's no way to, to, you know, elevate their concerns and their needs. Um, seniors that are starting to feel left out and feel unheard as well as, you know, young professionals and, and new residents are coming in. So, um, and that definitely um, was brought up to me quite a bit on the campaign trail. And as a candidate, when I was out knocking on the doors, I think, you know, whatever biases that folks had when they would see me with a hijab, for the most part, that would get put behind them when they heard that I'm running for their city council and I'm running for change because they're like, finally, someone's here to listen to me. And that's what I spent my time doing at the doors was, what are your concerns? What are your needs? What would you like from our city? And and what I often heard was, you know, that same feeling of, you know, I, I just need a voice. I need someone there to, to be there for me instead of for, you know, these developer interests or these corporate interests as well. Uh, we need to get back to more listening. Yeah. Uh, that's the only way you're going to close the, the chasm. Because it's, it's the thing that happened to me with the, with the Ginrich time was the person across the aisle wasn't someone who disagreed with you on major issues or the role of government, and maybe you could find a path, and if you couldn't, you were going to disagree when it came to votes. Now that person across the aisle is an enemy, a destroyer of this country, and that's kind of what we've come to now uh, across these aisles. In some way, we need to find uh, at the local level and also at the national level, where it's more gross to me, uh, find a way to get back to a conversation that does cross that chasm, at least on occasion. We're going to look at how we might do just that in our next program. Thank you, each of you, for participating in this, and thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again next week for the second part of this conversation with more wonderful observations. Thank you very much for joining us on Challenge 2.0. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Puccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.